Lily Flag Signal, full episode 24, The Shape of Huntsville's Water, part 1. It's almost the end of season 3 of this show, and if you missed it, I've already confirmed a season 4 will be coming in 2024, so you're not getting rid of me that easily. But I've made it a tradition to turn the end of season episodes into big two-parters, and this is part 1 of that. I've been wanting to talk about the Huntsville Waterworks, now part of Huntsville Utilities, since I started the show. The bicentennial for said waterworks was in February of 2023, and when I realized there was no way I'd have an episode ready for that actual bicentennial day, I decided to really beef up the script and go more in-depth on the whole thing and just release it at the end of 2023, because time's not real anyhow. And there's a lot to talk about. For its first 35 years of existence, which is actually all I'll have time to get into today, the waterworks got bounced around among multiple owners, many of which had their own feuds and failings and hate mail in the newspaper, you know, the usual. There were also changes in technology, population growth, advertising cliches, and really cheap whiskey. So let's get on with it. To Lily Flag Signal, a Huntsville, Alabama history podcast where we're making a splash, no, no, uh, swimming in information, piping history to you, dripping with fun facts, quenching your thirst for knowledge. I don't know. Pretend that I just made a really good water related pun because today we're talking all about the early history of Huntsville's waterworks, now part of Huntsville Utilities. Speaking of Huntsville Utilities, I want to first extend my utmost thanks to them, particularly Amanda, Todd, Joe, and Gary for being so willing to share knowledge and archive info with me. Anyone who responds kindly to an email that includes the line, I'm doing research for a podcast and, is an MVP around here, so thank you. Huntsville, the city as we know it, is located where it is because of the spring downtown. Though indigenous people obviously lived here for centuries and knew about the spring, John Hunt's arrival in 1805 is what the city lists as its settled-in date. The spring is still flowing to this day through the park, starting at the eastern end, but we no longer get our drinking water directly from it there amongst the ducks and park benches below the town square. 200 years ago, though, it was just a little spring flowing out from a bluff. If you weren't previously aware, the county courthouse and much of downtown sit atop a limestone cave. The big spring is what's called a karst spring, and it flows through that cave system, meaning the limestone actually provides some filtration for the water. Obviously, the modern waterworks do more for our drinking water safety than just dump it over some cave rocks, but in the early 1900s, this limestone filtration mattered. When Leroy Pope bought the land in 1811, which is a whole episode in itself someday, he and his pals laid out the roads such that they aligned with the spring's location. Apparently, that's why the roads in downtown aren't on a north-south-east-west grid. This also meant that the downtown square, the hub of business and politics for the growing town, was directly next to the spring. To this day, over two centuries later, the courthouse is still situated across the street from the spring, which is now the focal point of Big Spring Park. And that leads me to an agreement from 1823. Quote, Whereas Hunter Peel of Madison County has proposed to supply the town of Huntsville with good spring water to be conveyed by hydrants into a reservoir on the public square, in considerations thereof, and of one dollar to us paid by said Peel, we, the president and board of trustees of said town of Huntsville, for and in consideration, end quote, blah, 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 he was given land access to build the waterworks. That's where it all began. And you heard me correctly, by the way, that quote said one dollar. Hunter Peel, a British engineer who moved to Huntsville in 1816, paid exactly one dollar for the, quote, right and privilege, end quote, to be the one constructing and running the waterworks. 
This isn't some sort of, oh, a dollar back then is worth millions now type of thing either. From what I can find, they just genuinely wanted a water system for both easy access to drinking water as well as for firefighting. I also want to point out that this agreement between the town and Hunter Peel to get water distributed was a business agreement and not a land deed. Hunter would own and be responsible for the waterworks, but the land on which the spring sat was still Leroy Pope's. Like I mentioned a moment ago, the whole saga of Pope buying up the land that's now downtown Huntsville from the U.S. government, including parts on which people were already living, is worthy of its own deep dive episode or two, or three, but for today I just want to make sure to differentiate between owning the land where the spring comes out of the ground versus owning the right to pump the water from said spring. Pope essentially said, you can use my water, but you have to figure this engineering stuff out yourselves. When Hunter Peel started on the waterworks in 1823, the concept was in no way new, not even in the United States. I found numerous references to city waterworks of various sizes and qualities that existed in the 18th century, like one installed in 1771 in North Carolina and in 1772 in Rhode Island, and various setups in New York City in the late 1700s, including one that, fun fact, was led by Aaron Burr. Yes, that Aaron Burr. However, our Huntsville Waterworks was, as far as anyone I've talked to or read has been able to find, the first public waterworks system west of the Appalachian Mountains. I mean, relative to the mountains, I know most people wouldn't call us way out west, but I'll take it. It's cool to be first at something, regardless of the caveats. From what was written at the time, people in Huntsville were excited about this, of course. New technology, growing city, better water access, what's not to love? Here's an incredibly optimistic take on it from the Huntsville Republican newspaper on March 28th of 1823. Quote, We are highly gratified to learn that Mr. Peel, who has been for some time devising a plan to supply the town with water, has succeeded to his utmost wishes in constructing a dam at the spring with a fall sufficient to propel machinery for raising any quantity of water the inhabitants of the town and its vicinity require. He intends sinking a reservoir near the courthouse, which is to be kept constantly full, and having obtained a grant from the corporation to lay aqueducts through all streets and public places, there is now no obstruction to his supplying every family with water at their doors or in their yards, which we understand he will be able to effect during the ensuing summer, and upon the most moderate terms. This is an undertaking which will add so much to public and individual convenience that we hope to see the enterprising projector liberally patronized and handsomely remunerated by our townsmen." End quote. Constantly full reservoir. Yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that. Not to be a downer, but if you've listened to many of my episodes, you should know by now that a lot of these newspaper quotes lauding new tech are always dreadfully over-optimistic, but at the time in 1823, people were psyched. Hunter Peel, this engineer who started out on the Waterworks Project, also worked in surveying. He came to Huntsville in 1816, prior to Alabama becoming a state and during the time period where a lot of the early land surveying was taking place in the area for new white settlers. I actually found online where a rare maps dealer in New England recently-ish sold an 1817 map of what was then the northern part of the Alabama Territory, as drawn by Hunter Peel and some associates, so some of his 200-year-old cartography is still floating around amongst collectors. Anyhow, a few months after that initial $1 agreement with the Waterworks in 1823, Hunter Peel teamed up with a man named James Barclay in a, quote, covenant of co-partnership, end quote, for 10 years. The fine print of this agreement stated that they would, quote, bear equally the expense to divide equally the profits and suffer equally the losses to be sustained, end quote. Remember that, because much like the full reservoir thing, it's gonna come up in a second. Much like the early waterworks systems in Rhode Island and North Carolina that I just mentioned, this first waterworks here used logs made of cedar. 
They were hollowed out and charred, then connected via metal straps to hold the logs together. You can actually see one of these logs on display in the lobby of Huntsville Utilities downtown office, and every now and then during construction work, an old log pipe will still be dug up even nowadays and be somewhat recognizable, so I guess they did have some longevity? In terms of the flavor of water that's been piped through charred cedar, James Barclay assured the public at the time, quote, that part which stands in the water will be made of timber which will not affect the taste, end quote. Getting the water from the spring up to the courthouse square wasn't as easy as just running these log pipes, though. The area where the spring comes out is about 40 feet lower in elevation than the downtown square. There's a little bluff. Nowadays, there are nice, though somewhat challenging if you're out of shape, stairs to get you from the park below to the courthouse above. I see plenty of people working it into their exercise routine while jogging, but at the time Hunter and James were putting together the first waterworks, this bluff presented nothing but an engineering challenge. They'd need to pump the water up. James Barclay announced in the fall of 1824 that he had begun making the pumps, quote, constructed upon scientific principles and of durable materials, end quote. The setup for this pumping is a lot like how hydroelectric power is produced nowadays by dams, that's D-A-M-S, operated by the Tennessee Valley Authority that provide many of you with electricity, though this was called a hydraulic engine and obviously did not have electricity. The spring was dammed up, meaning there was a pooled area where the water came out and then a wall of sorts over which the water would fall. In the TVA dams that make electricity, you've got these things called turbines that the water flows over when it gets through the dam, and the spinning motion is what's used to generate electricity. With James Barclay's setup, they had a little water wheel outside a pump house that spun with the flow of the water, and then that spinning motion is what was making the pump work to get the drinking water up those 40 feet to the downtown square. No electricity. Because some of the spring water was being pushed over the dam and water wheel rather than up the pipes to be consumed by waterworks subscribers, you've probably figured out that not every drop of that nice, clear, big spring water was going into the reservoirs and hydrants of the town. Educational info put out by Huntsville Utilities lists the spring's output as ranging from 7 to 20 million gallons of water a day, and there were absolutely not enough customers in 1823 to need all of that. The excess water continued flowing out from the spring, and depictions of the spring area from the 1800s show bridges over it, just like today in the park but wider, and even some people having to ford the stream with their carts and horses. There is a canal constructed later to take this water, along with any cargo floated down it, to the Tennessee River, but that's coming up in a few minutes. So the pump is getting up and running, kinda, and the cedar pipes are being bored and installed. These two guys have a nice little setup. This is the part where we say what could go wrong, and then realize that the answer is most everything. Firstly, that partnership between Hunter and James didn't last long. From a court document in February 1825, about a year and a half after they had officially teamed up, quote, Whereas it has been represented to me by James Barclay and Thomas Peel that a controversy exists between them which they are desirous to settle by arbitration, end quote, it goes on. So they had beef. More specifically, they disagreed over debts. The combined money owed was $610.54, which Barclay and Peel paid equally, like that previous contract stated, and they parted ways. The disagreement between them played out publicly, too, in the newspaper. In December of 1824, two months before the aforementioned court decision, Hunter Peel put a notice in the Democrat, a Huntsville newspaper at the time, that all money owed to the Peel-Barclay partnership should be paid directly to him, Peel, and to, quote, forewarn all persons from making any contract with the said James Barclay, end quote. Essentially, Hunter claimed James wasn't following the agreement they'd made or being honest about the monetary side of things. The clapback from James Barclay, also published in the Democrat less than a month later, began as follows, 
quote, Without the slightest pretense of justification, Hunter Peel has dragged my name before the public by notice in the papers of this place of the 8th of December last, having, I hope, heretofore maintained an irreproachable character for integrity and honest deportment. This attempt of Mr. Peel to do me an injury is considered as the offspring of a malignant heart, end quote. He then goes on to refute the claim that he had gone against his word and warns the public about, quote, Mr. Peel's motives, end quote. It was messy, and like I said, they had to go to court to settle it all up. But anyhow, the waterworks. The show, or in this case, the waterworks, had to go on, however, and their management got passed around like a hot potato for a while there. In February 1825, Joshua Cox put a notice in the newspaper that he'd purchased the waterworks from old feuding James and Hunter, and that, quote, all those indebted to the works, end quote, now owed him money. Though the drama between the two original waterworks proprietors had passed, there were still a number of issues. From the operator's side, there was an issue where subscribers were letting people outside of their home use the water hydrants, that's their connection to the water system, and essentially helping other households get out of paying for waterworks access. Josh Cox put a notice out that, quote, in all cases where it comes to his knowledge, the contract and the articles of agreement will be enforced, end quote. At this point, James Barkley was still in town and offering his services as a water pump maker as well as seeking an apprentice in pump making, quote, who will also be taught the construction of waterworks by hydraulic engines, end quote. From what I can gather from newspaper articles at the time, and there were quite a few, the waterworks still weren't particularly reliable. Water not works. That reservoir was not constantly full for one, meaning people weren't able to get that reliable water access straight to their homes or businesses. I have a particularly spicy letter to the editor of the Southern Advocate from 1826 that I'll read now. It's a tad long as far as quotes on this show go, but I couldn't pick a favorite part, so you get to hear it all. Quote, I have borne patiently the serious deprivation of not having a drop of water in my hydrant for the last six weeks, but I can no longer withhold giving vent to merited remonstrance. I would have appealed to the agent, but I know not who he is or where he is. Hence the necessity of making my complaint through the medium of a public journal. What is the cause that for three months in a year, one half at least of the hydrants are not supplied with water? Does it arise from inattention, the inefficiency of the machinery, the lowness of the springs, or from a combination of these three causes? If it is during the lowness of the spring, the usual cause assigned, would it not be practicable to counteract this by an additional number of pumps, or by such an adaptation of the water wheel that it might receive an increased momentum? Whatever the cause may be, whether irreparable or remedial, the effect is the same, and justifies the citizens in raising their voice against imposition which they have suffered. Is the deduction of some four or five dollars an equitable consideration for the loss of the water for three months, for the additional servant which we must procure, and the derangement of our family economy? Certainly not, and several gentlemen have informed me that they will resist the payment of the second moiety of the annual rent, conceiving that should the matter undergo judicial investigation, it will be found that the charter has been forfeited. This charter I have never seen, but I've understood that it is a most strange document, that every advantage was granted to the contractors, and little or nothing reserved to the poor citizens. This may be, but if I have been rightly informed as to some particulars, I have little doubt but that it can be vitiated and set aside. Something ought to be done, for it would be much better to have no hydrants at all than to depend on them, subject as they are to such uncertainty and frequent stopping." End quote. It's signed, a sufferer, and I can't imagine anyone in charge was thrilled to read that in the paper. So the hot potato that was the waterworks got tossed along again a year later in 1826, this time to a man named Thomas Ronalds. He lived in Argyle, New York, then New York City, something I thought was a typo the first time I read it in the records, 
but wasn't a total rando. He was listed in the Huntsville newspaper as a reference for some other businessmen prior to this, for example, alongside other Alabama businessmen. At the time that he owned the Huntsville Waterworks, Tom Ronalds was also running a stationery store, like envelopes and nice papers, because those pair well with the waterworks. That was at 203 Pearl Street in New York City, a location that's now a parking deck charging $54.91 a day for parking. Anyhow, with Tom being in New York City, he needed someone in Huntsville to manage things, and that's where Samuel D. Morgan comes in. These two were responsible for a number of improvements to the waterworks, including a new dam, pump house, wooden pipes, and reservoir. The town of Huntsville paid $900 to Tom for this reservoir in installments of $300 over the course of three years, from 1828 to 1830. For some perspective, the entire constable's salary then was only about $250 a year. This reservoir was a huge investment, and it was apparently large enough that they built a brick building around it and made that reservoir the first floor, with the second floor having a meeting area for the town alderman. Sam Morgan, the man running the show locally, was also advertising to the community his services as, quote, a first-rate pump maker, end quote. That makes him the second Waterworks-affiliated person to be offering such a service, but also there were only so many people in town who had hydraulic engineering experience, so it makes sense. The waterworks were now something for the town to be proud of again, no offense to Peel, Barclay, or Cox, and businesses were mentioning their water access and advertising even. For example, one hotel in downtown Huntsville was bragging in 1835 about their quote, first-rate hydrant in the bar room, which by a few turns of the wheel furnishes water as cool as if dipped out of the spring, end quote. And then Tom Ronalds died in 1835, and as such was not able to run a waterworks in a city 800 miles away. His eldest daughter, Maria, sold the operation to a group that became known as Fern, Crenshaw, and Company for $2,500. It was actually the fact that she signed the papers instead of Tom that tipped me off to look into his passing. The Ferns, that would be the brothers George Fern and Dr. Thomas Fern, then entered a contract with the city to start improving the waterworks system in what was essentially a complete do-over. This included installing an iron pump at the spring to distribute water to, quote, the four corners of the public square, end quote, and to build a new reservoir to address that whole elevation change issue from the spring. This reservoir was built on Eccles Hill and could hold a little over a quarter million gallons, which is still only like 4% of the Big Spring's output on a bad day. The Ferns had one year to start on the project and five years to finish it, else they would owe the mayor and alderman, which is what they called the city council back then, a whopping $2,500. There was also the stipulation that the pipes leading to the reservoir off the square had to be five inches in diameter. The redoing of the waterworks pipes during the Fern era also marked the first usage of cast iron pipes in the system. This same agreement also said that the brothers, quote, agree and undertake to continue said works after they are constructed in operation forever, so as to always afford an adequate supply of water for the fire plugs and reservoir, end quote. Forever. If you're a local history nerd and recognize the name Fern, that's for good reason. But if you don't, no worries, this is an educational podcast, and I will, of course, explain. The Fern brothers had a hand in Veduta, the community atop Montesano that was established with the promise of fresh, healing mountain air, and they had a hand in the construction of the Indian Creek Canal that led from the spring out to the Tennessee River. The work itself was performed by enslaved laborers, so I'm not going to say that the Ferns built the canal, but they were responsible for it on a planning and monetary basis. The other big thing associated with Dr. Thomas Fern, who I mentally call Tommy, is his success in treating typhoid fever with quinine in 1831, which then led to the use of quinine to treat malaria. 
It turns out quinine kills the parasite that actually causes malaria. Nowadays, we have safer medicines to use with fewer side effects, but in the 1830s, this was a game changer and saved a lot of lives. Weird fun fact, but one of the Rockefellers, John Rockefeller's daughter-in-law, Abby, actually owned a portrait of what's believed to be Tommy Fern. They absolutely did not know each other as Fern died in 1863 before Abby Rockefeller was even born, but the fact that she owned the portrait at all was such a weird research find that I wanted to share. In terms of researchability, Thomas Fern was a bit of a goldmine in that he did what a lot of historians hope people will do. He kept meticulous records. This included his daily expenditures, down to the fractions of a cent, which means one can practically track his movements and eating habits over 150 years later. Like, on January 7th of 1841, he spent 50 cents on apples and a dollar on a book called Natural History of Birds. I actually found a digital copy of this book and linked to it in the podcast transcript, available on the website, lilyflagpodcast.wordpress.com, on the off chance you want to check out a book that the owner of the Waterworks 180 years ago was into. This thoroughness of record-keeping also held true with regard to the waterworks, and that means I can tell you a little about the prices of waterworks services downtown in the first half of the late 1840s. The pricing was based not on consumption, like it is today, because they didn't have meters at each house. Instead, it was a flat rate based on the house's occupancy. If there were five or fewer people living in the house, water was $15 a year. Six people meant $16, seven meant $17, etc., up to 10 people in a house, meaning a water bill of $20 a year. Past that, it was just 50 cents more per person a year. Oh, and each horse or cow you had added another dollar to the yearly bill. There were also special rates for different types of businesses, including $5 a year for a doctor's office, $15 a year for a confectionery not selling liquor, and $20 for a confectionery which did. Now, I'd like to introduce a little math here. Tommy Fern kept his receipts for everything, meaning I can do a little breakdown of water costs versus other items. In those meticulous records he kept, and which local historian Nancy Rohr transcribed for future reading, thank you so much to her for typing this up, one can see what was spent on various daily expenses and then do comparisons. For example, I can see that on January 7th, 1841, Tommy spent $1 on that Natural History of Birds book. So for the cost of a year's water bill, one could buy 15 bird books. Later that year, he bought 588 pounds of flour, a totally normal activity, for $21. That's the cost of a year of water service to a household of 12 people, or of one person and six cows, I guess. The U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics has an inflation calculator that I usually use for monetary values, but it doesn't go back further than 1913, and honestly, these comparisons are more fun. Remember that $900 reservoir that the town paid Tom Ronalds and Sam Morgan for in 1828? At that same time, a gallon of molasses was 60 cents and a gallon of whiskey was 50 cents, according to the fern records kept for the Indian Creek Canal. Instead of that water reservoir, the town of Huntsville could have purchased 1,800 gallons of whiskey. Anyhow, this system of charging a flat rate for water connection persisted for quite a while, and it led to some businesses using water-powered systems even when electricity was available. I actually found a picture from the 1890s where an entire shop used hydro-powered ceiling fans since there was no meter and you could essentially leave the water running constantly with no charge. While the Fern Waterworks were much more reliable than previous iterations, there was a stipulation in the Waterworks contracts with users that they were allowed to shut off the Waterworks for one day a month and an additional one hour a week for repairs. It was also during Fern's tenure as Waterworks Overlord that Huntsville actually got possession of the spring. 
Until then, this land had actually remained in possession of the Pope family, but in 1843 it was deeded to the mayor and aldermen, which is how in official documents of the time they'd referred to giving things to the city. See also my Molly Teal episode where this came up in a big way. The spring sold for $1, and this was clearly meant to be presented as a more benevolent, charitable thing, since the deed mentions the town had been doing things with the spring already, quote, for the purposes of beautifying the spring branch and benefiting the health of the citizens, end quote. Mention of the big spring, clean drinking water, and just the general healthiness of Huntsville are a theme that has been echoed in advertising the area for a very long time, see also the Montesano Hotel episode, and having this more reliable water system and well-maintained area around the spring really kicked this off. It's really uncommon that I'll find mention of Huntsville by a travel writer or advertiser that doesn't bring up the spring, like in a letter from 1845 that said of us, quote, This city is one of the most beautiful as well as the most healthy city in the South, end quote followed immediately by a description of the waterworks and the, quote, crystal waters, end quote, it pumps through town. When the city got possession of the spring in 1843, the waterworks had 111 subscribers. A few years later in 1850, the census showed a population of only 2,862. This number includes both free and enslaved residents, and keep in mind that a waterworks subscriber was just that household, whether it had one occupant or over a dozen. In 1858, Dr. Fern sold the waterworks to the city of Huntsville, who have owned them ever since. The price? $10,000. Gone were the days of seemingly benevolent $1 sales, it seems, but I digress. As for the exciting changes that took place between 1858 and modern times, that's over a century and a half of more waterworks fun, you'll have to come back for part two. There will be maps and diseases and, of course, some fun quotes, so hopefully I'll talk to you then. Thanks so much for joining me today. As always, I'll have bloopers at the end in a sec, but first, thank you again to Amanda, Todd, Gary, Joe, and so many others at Huntsville Utilities for sharing their time, knowledge, and archives with me. Part two of this episode will mark the end of season three of the show, but I'll be back in February of 2024 with more Huntsville history for your ears. In the meantime, if you want weekly mini-episodes or fun fact stories, you can join the Patreon starting at $5 a month over at patreon.com slash lilyflagpodcast. That's L-I-L-Y-F-L-A-G-G podcast, two G's in flag. Another huge thanks goes out to all the current supporters, including Allison, Emily C., Eric, Lauren, Emily Z., Jennifer, and Bill. If you want to get a shout out in part two of this episode or check out the other perks of being a show patron, head over to the Patreon for that. Running this show isn't cheap or fast, and your contributions help pay for things like research site subscriptions and the hours of my time I put into research, writing, and recording. Speaking of which, if you want to follow along with show research, behind the scenes fun, photos to go along with the episode, and more, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Lily Flag Podcast, again with two G's and flag. The episode transcript for this and other shows can also be found on the podcast website, which is lilyflagpodcast.wordpress.com. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, stay hydrated, cite your sources, and I'll talk to you soon. To be the one conducting and running the waterworks. That should say constructing. You can actually see one of these logs on display at the, uh, lo- the lobby. <laughs> oh my gosh, the lobby. I have little doubt, but that it can be vi- vitiated, vitiated? Which is still only like 4% of the Big Springs output. output, output. This city is one of the most beautiful as well as the most, health, most, most healthy. Inflation is weird. Hunter Peel paid $1 to start the waterworks in 1823, and I paid $1 for a used Volvo sedan in 2010.